always, it's a pleasure to welcome to the Boy Liver Building, the Everton officers to James Vaughan. First time you've been here, Vaughan, what do you think of the new place? Yeah, it's unbelievable. Uh, we were just talking before how, how lovely the place is and how things have changed since my time at the club. You did your work experience in an Everton office, didn't you? Yeah, it was. It was the offices just above the club shop. So, <laughs> you know, I, I know what it was like before this building and I can imagine it's a lot better place to work in well, now. Without any shadow of a doubt. Let's go back to the start of the James Wall story. You were born in Birmingham. Was it, was it a multicultural area that you were brought up in? Yeah, it was. It was uh, Birmingham is a, is a city is very multicultural and... For me, it was a case of I was just one of many, you know, different races and ethnicities, and it was nothing different to me in Birmingham. Nobody's nobody's actually born a racist, aren't they? They they, they? they become racist for some reason or another. When when did you first become aware of the fact that, that racism existed? Because as you say, it was a multicultural environment that you grew up in, so it was part of your everyday life. I think from a young age, my dad made me aware that it was something that happened, and you know. Sometimes we're treated different to others because of the way we look and stuff like that. But I never actually experienced any racism until I was probably about 10 when I went away with Everton to Italy. We played an Italian team out there and me and Victor got quite badly abused in that game. So it was quite shocking, but you know, it was something my dad had prepared me for. Was there any fallback from that? Um, I remember the coach at the time making a big fuss of it and you know, apologising to us on behalf of them really, which they didn't need to do, but they, they obviously protected us and you know, Everton as a club were brilliant with us over that situation, but further than that, there was, there was not much more that went on. Do you on. remember if it put you off your stride, did it, did it, did it, or did you think to yourself, oh really, well I'll show you? Yeah, no, I wasn't really one of them that would, I think I was always the case of if you made me angry, I was probably more at it, so mm. it, I'd say it probably helped me. I wasn't, like I said, my dad had always, always prepared me for it, so it wasn't something that I was surprised about. But at the same time, you know what they're trying to do and you know, it was kind of, let's have a look at it then, let's see what, what, what I'm about. Your dad played top level sports, he played rugby, didn't he? Did he, did he speak to you about any experiences that he'd had or did he, did he experience racism himself? Not that I know of, obviously, you know, was it when he was growing up it was a different era and him and his family experienced a lot of racism, but as regards to him playing rugby, I don't remember seeing it and rugby at the time was a different sport. I think if someone would have said something to him then, being rugby, would have just been able to, you know, have a fight with them and sort it out that way. Laughed himself, can't he, big dog? Yeah, he's a big lad, so I think it would have took a brave man to say something like that to him on on the pitch. Did you ever go rugby yourself? Yeah, I loved rugby. Rugby was a real passion of mine until football became really serious. So that was probably the the main sport I liked. What other sports did you do? Because you were a bit of a bit of a sprinter, weren't you as well? Yeah, it was just like between rugby and football, um, that was the main focus, and then. Like you said, I did the athletics for a long time and they were the three that I really focused on. You joined Everton when you were nine years of age? Well, when we could officially sign, couldn't we, when we were nine, but I've been going since I was six or seven. Um, Still living in Birmingham? No, we lived in Preston with my dad's rugby and, and running a pub for a few years and that's when I got picked up by Everton and then I moved back to Birmingham when I was about nine. So it's a big commitment from the family, isn't it, to get you to and from training because if you think about it, if you're at Everton at nine, I mean, you got into the first team when you were 16, but most players are unlikely to get in the first team until they're 18. It's, 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 it's nine years of travelling at times from a long distance. It, it, it must have been tough at times. It was. It was really tough, and I'd be, I'd be coming out of school early, and mum and dad would have to get off work and take me up, but they were fantastic. Everton as well. They'd, you know, When I couldn't get there, they'd send someone to pick us up, and I'd be able to stay over at a family's house over a weekend. And then right. when I was 13, 14, I finally moved away from home and lived in Diggs. 
lovely family, John and Linda. They were brilliant with me. And was that tough? Um, at the time, no, it wasn't because I was just a 13-year-old kid chasing his dream, and mm. you know, I still got to see my family as often as I could, and I was just there to play football, and that's all I wanted to ever do. Was there a support mechanism in place at Everton? Because you obviously you're, you're far from being the only kid in that situation, and, and, and you're obviously very tough-minded, so other kids maybe not as tough-minded as you might have struggled. Was, was there a support mechanism? Was there, a, was there an arm around your tennis from the football club? Yeah, there was. You know, we had Mike Dickinson, who was there. He was brilliant with all the lads in and out of school, and all the coaches were very aware of what was going on. Um, obviously, now the the mental health thing's a big issue, and I think mm. in different ways. When I was a kid, they'd, they'd monitor that, but it wasn't as as obvious as the the ways they're doing it nowadays. Not the coaches' fault because it was the way people behaved at the time, but the way they dealt with mental health not so long ago was to. Put her arm around you, say, "Come on, man up, get out there, see it through, tough it through," wasn't it? Yeah, and if I'm honest, I think there's an element that still needs to to be like that, just because, you know, as a parent myself now, I think when you give an easy option, sometimes mm-hmm. kids want to take it. So there's a case of preparing the kids for what's to come, because being a footballer is not easy. It, it does take a lot of mental strength. So there's a case of preparing them for it, but at the same time, making sure that they, they can get through it. That's a great line. I like that line. Being a professional footballer is not easy because people think it is, don't they? People think they see the big cars, the nice houses, the goal celebrations on match of the day. But with it comes an awful lot of pressure. It, it does, to be honest. And I look back at my time. I was a, like I said, I was 13 living with my mum and dad, and then three years later, I'm playing and scoring in the Premier League, and I was not prepared for that. So mentally, I was just like all the other kids. And then suddenly I'm in the limelight and I'm playing and I've got to deal with that at the same time. So it isn't easy. Like I say, it's the best job in the world and you wouldn't change any of it, but it's not as easy as it, it, it looks from the outside. It's interesting that you said you, you're scoring goals at 16 in the Premier League, which you were, but you weren't prepared for it. What, what, what aspects of it weren't you prepared for? What, what took you by surprise and, and weren't that easy to, de- to deal with? I think the biggest thing for me was you know walking around town and people were staring at me and I'm thinking, What's he looking at? <laughs> but then you, you realise they're an Everton fan and you know they just they, they see you as this superstar playing for their club, but really inside you're just feeling like a normal another lad on the street. And that was a difficulty for me to to get my head round why people are looking at me and recognising me kind of thing. The teammates speak to each other when you're coming through the ranks. You and fellow 14, 15, 16 year olds, if you did have an issue, if you did have a problem, if somebody was struggling, somebody was homesick, somebody was in bad form or had been dropped from the team or injured, did you speak to each other? Did you help each other along or did that not happen at that age? No, I'll be honest, I don't think that happens. I think any of the lads that I remember that were struggling like that, you'd probably see them as weak and, you know, yeah. like you say, toughen up and get through it. But I just thought, I think kids are cruel. I don't think kids. Mm are there to support each other. I think, one, we're all trying to get to where we want to be, which is a professional footballer, and two, kids are kids. It's not. I don't think it's the responsibility of the kid to be worrying about other people's mm. feelings as such. I suppose as well as as well as well being teammates, you're also competitors, aren't you? Because you're playing for a team, there's 11 players, a squad of 16, 17, 18. You know only a couple are going to get through to the first team, so you've got to make sure that you're in the team ahead of your mates, haven't you? Yeah, definitely, and it's not even the first team, it's it's the youth cup, the youth team and all that. You know that the best team's going to get picked, so regardless of the first team, you want to get in that team first and foremost, and they're the lads that you're you know, dealing with day in, day out, and you've got to get past them to get in the team. Did you get any racist abuse when you were playing for Everton? Um, no, like I say, I, 
I can remember the, the time when I was a kid in, in Italy. That, yeah. that stands with me. And then I went away with England under 17s um, again to Italy. And I got, really? I got a bit on the pitch off a few of their players. My dad got a bit in the stand. Wow. Um, it all kicked off, really, to be honest with you. Last long. <laughs> no, it was it was it was quite bad. It was a, uh, I think it was there was a big inquiry over it at the time, and they're the only two m- memories that really stick in my mind, to be honest. So once you got to Premier League level, it wasn't really an issue. No, not 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 to me. I can't sit here and say I got racially abused a load because mm. I, I really don't think I did. I remember there was a situation with uh, I think it was Yobo and Emery. Yeah. I was I was here for that, and I remember the kick off in the changing room afterwards, but. Like I say, me personally, I didn't really receive none. You just mentioned Victor there, yourself and Victor playing for Everton. Victor's obviously uh, one of your closest friends. And, and I've spoken to Victor a few times and, and, and he seems to have experienced a wee bit more racist abuse. How did, that, how did that affect him? See, I think me and Victor are probably different characters. I think mm. it did affect him a bit more than me. I think I probably would get a bit of fire in me and risk probably getting sent off and... You know, you probably wasn't. I wasn't the type of person you'd really want to get riled up during a game. But I think maybe people thought to get the best out of it because he's so big and strong was to try and get in his head. So I think he might have dealt with it a little different to me. But you know, it, he didn't seem like at the time it was affecting him. But obviously, like you say, he's spoken of it yeah. since and said that it has affected him. Can you understand what people mean when they say if you could if you could amalgamate Victor and Vaughan, you'd have the perfect centre forward because you'd have a little bit of everything, couldn't you? Yeah, because I was mad and he was a good player. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're doing yourself down. You're doing yourself down. We're celebrating Black History Month in October morning. Where are we at as a sport? Where, where is football at? We've, we've, got, we've got certain initiatives that are trying to eradicate any form of discrimination, but it always seems that we can do more. Yeah, um, I think if you look back, I look at videos of years ago when players getting bananas thrown at them and... Mm. You've got to say that it is improving. You'd, you'd like to believe it's improved a lot. Um, obviously with social media now, there's a platform to, for people to do it as often as you want and have no you know, repercussions for their actions. So that's the issue. It's out there in the mainstream a lot more than it was back in the day. But if, if, you, if you take it to where it was, for me, it's improved massively. But there's still more we can do, isn't there? Yeah, that, like I said, there's always more we can do. And as long as we're trying and we're trying to go forward with it, and that's all we can do, try and educate people on why you shouldn't do it and who it affects and how it affects them. And hopefully in time, it, it, it's gone from the game completely. Do you think the deterrents need to be more severe? I mean, if, for me, if somebody, if somebody is hauled out of the crowd, they're found guilty, well, ban them up for three years, it doesn't do it again. Yeah, I, I think so. I, like, I'm not a lawyer, I can't really say about what, what the repercussions should be, but I definitely think there should be severer punishments for the people that are found guilty and then hopefully that would be a deterrent. We just owe it, don't we, to the, to the, to the players who played in the 70s and the 80s, your Clive Best and your Viv Andersons and your Cyril Regis's and your Laurie Cunningham's. We owe it to players like that who have suffered so much. We owe it to them to, to get where we want to be, don't we? Yeah, definitely. I think they work so hard at breaking down barriers. It would be it would be wrong for us to just let their hard work go to waste and it's for, for the next generation of players to pick up the baton and, and make sure that this has gone for good. Players have walked off the pitch, players are taking the knee, the, the players themselves, they're trying anything, can't they? Because it's, it's to a large extent, it's out of their hands, but they, they have to try these things. Yeah, they do. Um, 
all those things are good because they're all bringing, you know, pressure on the powers that be to to, to do more and stop it. Mm. But I think it's got to be something that is organic and, you know, like for instance, we're taking the knee. I thought it was a great statement to start off with. Now it kind of feels to me a bit like it's just something that happens before a game. Um, the impact of it's gone a little bit, so I'd like to see that change a little bit. But like I say, even us talking about it now is an improvement. So yeah, yeah. Anything we can do is better. Players walking off the pitch. Some people say yeah, do that. Some people say no, don't do that because it's it, you're punishing you're punishing the supporters who are behaving themselves, and you're punishing your teammates because the game's getting stopped. But it's so difficult, isn't it? Like I say, I was always one that that sort of thing would have spurred me on. So me walking off the pitch would have would have annoyed me, but mm. it's bigger than me. It's a bigger, biggest situation than just me playing better in a game. It's if that's gonna have the impact and and help and stop it, then then that's what we've got to do. But you know, it's just like I say, we just got to do all we can to try and get rid of it from from not just the sport, but from from society it's in general. Soci- it's a it's a societal thing, isn't it? And and we were speaking before. There's a very there's a thin line between on the field banter and off the field banter, but there's always got to be a difference, hasn't there? Because you know, if you're if you're on the pitch, sledging happens on a football pitch, doesn't it? If you're being marked by somebody, and you think, oh, he must have missed a few weeks training, he's carrying a little bit of timber, you've got to have a go at him, aren't you? Because it's part of sledging, it's part of football. Yeah, there is, and like you say, there's a fine line. I mean, I, like I say, I was the type of person that if I could get in someone's head, I would. I'm not saying I would have been racist to them, but. You know, you've got to toe that line and make sure that you're saying enough to get in the head, but mm. without crossing the line and, and being personal and really talking about bigger issues. Without mentioning a specific incident, you were you were a you were a pretty in your face type of centre forward, the type of centre forward that supporters love to watch. Did you ever cross the line yourself with banter? Did you ever think, oh no, gone a bit far there? No, I don't I don't think I did, no, because like I say, I always was aware of where the line was. I would do as much as I could to get the upper hand, but at the same time, it is a game of football, and you wouldn't want to affect someone in a way where mm. it was beyond that. You want to you want to get into the head and wind them up, but you don't want to offend them, do you? Yeah, exactly. That that's not what you want to do. You touched on the poison that social media can be. Young players have got to be so savvy about social media. Yeah, I think it's a tough one because, like I said earlier. Players are just normal people. So for me to sit here and say they shouldn't be on social media, they shouldn't do this, it's wrong. They should be able to live their lives. Most of them are in their 20s, living the dream, really. So why should they not do what the rest of society is doing? The only thing I would say is it's it's pretty pointless for them because they can't gain much from it other than, no. you know, obviously you get the endorsements and stuff, but they'll probably just have someone running them accounts anyway, so... You can't put you can't put your own opinions on social media. For me, anyway, a lot of people do, but because by putting your own opinions on there, you're just opening yourself up to abuse and attack, aren't you? Because yeah. half the world will disagree. That's why I think it's pointless because the players that are real on there will get abuse for it, and the players that aren't will get abuse because everyone will know they're not being real. So it's it's a it's a lose lose for them really. Your little boy's playing football now. He's he's. At the Everton Academy, six years of age. What sort of advice do you give him, or do you just let him go and enjoy himself? Um, I try and you know get him to enjoy himself and have fun. But like I say, it's, being a parent is difficult. Everyone knows that. It's uh, you want him to try his hardest in anything he does and make sure he he works hard. And that's what he does. To be fair to him, I'm just enjoying watching him. It's a long road. I'm quite realistic in you know he's six. So I've seen so many players at that age be really good and 
not get anywhere. I hope that's different for him, but I'm quite realistic that there's a long journey ahead for him. I used to love watching your dad at the reserve games, constantly shouting to you, constantly shouting to the lads. Are you like that watching your boy? Uh, no, I'm not. But <laughs> funny enough, my dad went to watch him last week and he come off and said, Dad, will you tell Grandad to stop shouting at me? <laughs> and I said, don't worry, son, you'll get used to it. I did. Does, he call, does, he, does your dad call your boy Vaughn? Yeah, he does, he does. Yeah, do you know what? He's brilliant, my dad. He, it's all encouragement. There's never yeah. any, any uh, malice in it. It's always well done and... But you can just hear his voice constantly. Absolutely. So, for me, little boy, it was a bit of a shock to him. Everybody loved having, having him around, Dad, because he's such a good character, isn't he? Yeah, he is. He, he's, he's probably more well known than me around certain <laughs> grounds, to be fair. But he's uh, he is good, and I did get used to it. So I'm sure a little man will get used to it as well. <laughs> you made your debut back in 2005. Scored that goal against Crystal Palace 16 years ago. Does it seem 16 years ago? Do you know what? It doesn't. Since I've retired, it's. It just looks like it's gone gone the blink of an eye, really, and mm. you, you can finally when when you're playing, you can't really look back on what's gone and what. But the last few months, I've sat back and it's some of the stuff that happened in my career, I'm really proud of, and that's one Absolutely. of the days. What's changed the most in professional football in Premier League? Well, no, professional football. What's changed the most since you made your debut back in 2005? I think it's got to be the physicality. I mean, I'm not saying I was playing in the 70s where it was. You know, blood and guts, but there was still tackling. There was still a bit of physicality. Nowadays, it's more of a, a tactical game, and yeah. you know, obviously the way I played, you could probably tell that I prefer <laughs> how it used to be. But no, it's just the way it's going. What winds you up about modern day game? There's a few things that wind me up. There's a few things that wind you up. But, but pick one. What, what winds you up? What winds me up? It's the, It's probably just that the physicality. It's just I love the way football was. A working man sport, you know, you can have a good tackle, you get up, you shake hands and you crack on it. It's a lot of whinging and moaning that goes on these days in the game. I've just put down when I made my notes one of my feigning injury. When, when you see the slow when, when the players see slow motion replays and they've caught a stray arm in the chest and they go down holding their faces, they must look at that on the television and think, Oh my gosh, how daft do I look? I won't do that again. But they don't seem to learn, do they? No, and I, and I do think it's a product of the environment. I think it's like I said, I was the type of person who I'd try and gain any advantage I could. And if I know someone's going to get in trouble for a little slap across the chest, you're probably <laughs> going to do the same thing. But I preferred it when you wouldn't get in trouble for that. I preferred yeah, it when you yeah. could. You didn't, you didn't want the centre-half to know he'd hurt you, did you? No, you, you wouldn't. If you let him know he'd hurt you, then even when I was playing at the start, it would be like, well, he's going to do it again. Mm. So it was a case of, you didn't hurt me, I'll get you back next time. And I loved that. And at the end of the game, there'd be no hard feelings. You'd just crack yeah. on and look forward yeah. to seeing him the next time. Did it ever spill over into the dressing room? You say there's no hard feelings at the final whistle. Did it ever spill over into the tunnel or the dressing room? You were trying to get into a yeah, a few times, but dressing room. But again, even even that once once you'd gone home, you got changed into your tracksuit or your suit or whatever. It was done. Then it was that was it. <laughs> I, I just don't think that that happens these days. The emotions are high only at the end of the game. Uh, let's finish with some quick fire questions, Ronnie. Who was the best player that you played with? Between three, for different reasons, I'd probably say Leighton Baines, Mikel Arteta and Luis Saha. Couldn't choose between the three. Let's take them one by one then. Leighton Baines, what, what was it about Baines? I think he's the only player I played with and at that time I played with him, he's probably the best in the world at his position. I mean, there was a point where he was incredible when he was playing for England and that, I think, you know, everyone knows the teams that were in for him, the big teams abroad and in England and it was because at that point he was probably one of the best players in his position in the world. His link-up play with Stephen Pienaar was beautiful to watch, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was incredible, and they had the most 
the strangest relationship you've ever seen. Two people who you would never put together, but no. they were so close. And it Chalk was, and cheese, it, yeah, it was it was really good, and you could see that rubbing off on them on the pitch. Mikel Arteta, he was just a master of the ball, wasn't he? Coming, you know, I I probably joined the first team a couple of months after he joined, and yeah. he was doing things. He just took training to another level. His his brain and the way he played and his intelligence was on another level. If somebody said to you, Mikel Arteta will one day be a Premier League manager, would you have been surprised? At the time, yeah, but now I look back and think his brain was just on another level. So it would have been a waste if he wasn't. Uh, Louis Sahar, you played up front a few times with Louis Sahar. He just had everything. He was fast, he's strong, two-footed. I think if you ask me who's the best at their best, he's he's one of the best strikers I've ever seen. He had me in certain times in training thinking I'm not at the level because he was doing things that was just incredible. Could that be a little bit soul-destroying at times when you're you're vying for a place in the team and you've got someone like Louis Sahar and you see him in training and you're still a young boy at the time and, and Louis does something sensational and you think, I'll never be able to do that. I think I was lucky that at the time when I was with Louis, I still probably believed I could get to that level yeah. because I was, what, 20, 21 and you think, well, I need to... It was more a case of I need to do that to be at his level rather than I can't do it, if you know what I mean, at the time. When he scored the goal in the cup final, you like me, did you think to yourself, too early that? Too no, early. do you know what? I genuinely, genuinely believed it was we were winning that game. Really? Uh, even to the last minute, I thought we were going to get an equalised and we are going to... I just... I'm quite like that. I have feelings and I thought that was our day, so it, was yeah. just, it just took me by surprise. Who kicked you the most in training? I was always the one who everyone said stay away from me because <laughs> I was just you so clumsy and you know I think of it at Everton who kicked me the most uh, didn't really have any cloggers did we any uh... Stubbs always used to give me a little elbow in the back of the air door but it was a clever one because it and he's like oh I'm sorry but I knew he wasn't sorry and <laughs> you know I was with Stubbsy last week I'm still terrified of him now to this day so probably I'd have to say Stubbsy who was the funniest who made you laugh the most in the dressing room Carly Carsley yeah, he's he's one of the best people to this day I've ever met in football. He was so dry. He looked after me like you wouldn't believe, and he had great bands. It was just, just he was a silent assassin. Yeah, he wasn't was. because uh, nobody would pin the blame on him, but he, he was at the root of many of the uh, many of the pranks. Yeah, and he he just walk in a room, drop a bomb, and then <laughs> walk out, and it'd be like, how's he got away with that again? And he just that you just see him in the corner, his shoulders going up and down. Again, somebody else who's doing really well coaching with the England twenty ones now, Carlos. Yeah, brilliant. I think, you know, where you say Mikel was a thinker and Carr's just great with people yeah. and he understood the game and he knew what he was good at and he knew how to get the best out of the people around him. So it, it's just a seamless transition. From your perspective and your career, you, you've played in every division there is to play in. Who was the best player outside of the Premier League that you played alongside? Uh, it's an easy one for me, Mark Davis. He starts off at Wolves. Then he went to Bolton and he just had a load of injuries. I genuinely believe he'd have been one of the the best players, best talents this country's had if it had not been for injuries. Where did you play with him? First of all, played with him at England under 17s and then we played all the age groups going through really. He was just, honest, honestly, he was, he could do do it all in midfield. He'd, he'd get a game and he'd just, he'd win the game on his own. Really? He was brilliant. Who would you compare him to then? Sounds stupid to say, but he played very similar in a way to Iniesta. He'd get the ball, he'd, he'd dribble past, he wouldn't split defences with passes. He'd carry the ball and he'd, he'd do a little slide pass and 
he was incredible. Honestly, he was. He was I have to say that the name Mark Davis is not familiar to me. Where, where did he end up? Bolton. He was at he uh, he started off at Wolves, and I think there was a big move on the horizon, going to one of the big clubs, and then he done his knee in the pre-season. Right. He never got going, and then he spent a, a good few years at Bolton, and then ended up retiring early through injury. He, he was incredible. Sometimes it's the roll of the dice, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it was just just timing a bit. Never really worked for him. Away from Everton, who was the best manager that? You ever played for? For me, I'd probably say Paul Lambert, and I never really played for him. But the way he managed the group, you know, he had his way of doing things, and I just thought he knew what he was doing. He had a system to what he was doing, and he he was really good. Where was that? Norwich. Right. Okay. Yeah. Because he's had a f- he's had he's had a few jobs, and, and a few of his jobs haven't worked out too well for him, have they? Yeah, because his st- his style's very unique. It's like I'll pick a team for that game not what's happened in the game before. So you could have scored two, find yourself on the bench the following week because you didn't suit the team we were playing against. So I can imagine a few lads didn't yeah, buy yeah, into yeah. that. But it's a very interesting answer that because I, I bet if we ask the listeners to guess and go through your career, not many would say Paul Lambert. No, I, and to be honest, like I said, I didn't play very much for him. <laughs> in fact, I didn't play hardly ever, but I just liked the way he was the same with all his players, he treated everyone the same. Um, Right or wrong, he had a way of doing things and he stuck to it, so I respected that. Good stuff. You played for a lot of clubs during your time. When you look back over your career, and I know you're quite single-minded, quite tough-minded, you've probably got very few regrets, but are there any clubs that you joined throughout your career that you think, every time again, I wouldn't go there? Yeah, probably. Well, it's difficult because I think when I joined them, I think I'd have made the decision 10 times out of 10 to join that club rather than the other one. but. It didn't work out, so in hindsight, I'd say probably I shouldn't have joined Norwich. Right. I'd been on loan at Palace. I'd loved it. I was loved at Palace, but they were in the Championship and Norwich in the Premier League. Right. Norwich ended up getting relegated, and I didn't play. Got injured, and Palace got promoted. So I think that could have been different. But again, in, in hindsight, that's easy to say. At the time, I don't think anyone would have picked the Championship team over Premier League. Was that why you picked Norwich simply because they were in a higher division? Yeah, I just want to stay in the Premier League. When I was leaving Everton, I didn't want to drop out of the Premier League, and I. I thought Norwich had just come up, they'd made a play to get me in it, I thought it'd be a good move. Obviously it didn't work out. And then the other one would be when I signed for Sunderland. Um, Again, if you'd have asked anyone, I I had Sunderland or Cardiff I think it was to go to. And Sunderland had just come from the Premier League, Cardiff had finished mid-table in the Championship, so I thought best chance to get back into the Premier League, Sunderland. Again, Sunderland got relegated, Cardiff got promoted. So, <laughs> but from the outside looking in, nobody, nobody could foresee just how much Sunderland would implode because you might regret going there, but it's a fabulous football club, isn't it? Exactly, and like I say, it's not a regret because I don't think anyone would have made a different decision. Mm. It's just mm. when you look back on it now, how things could have been different. You say, well, and I didn't have a great time at Sunderland. I didn't really enjoy it, so that's probably one where I wish. Who was your manager at Sunderland? Uh, Simon Grayson. Oh, okay. Yeah. Things just didn't go well for the football club, did they? Yeah, no, it was it was a tough time for anyone. I think you see what where they went since anyone joined was going to find it really difficult. And you know, for me, it was it wasn't the right move at the right time. So, did you retire from football in the summer at just the right time? Was it the perfect timing for you? Yeah, it was. Yeah, I was always conscious that I didn't want to just play and play and play and then end up playing four games in a season coming off the bench every week and just pitter out I was you know I'd, I'd had a relatively good season last year kind of made my decision to retire and then I got another knee injury so it was kind of 
made sense. Upon, you know, anyway. Yeah, made sense. The Football Association ring you up, James, and say, James, it's the FA here. We want you to change one rule in football. What's your answer? Uh, it's not to protect keepers so much. <laughs> it really annoys me. They're allowed to use the hands. They've got an advantage anyway, but yeah, anytime you touch them, it's a foul. It's crazy, isn't it? Because the centre half can buffer you for 90 minutes. You can buffer the centre half for 90 minutes. No free kick, no bounce ball, nothing. But as soon as you make contact with the goalkeeper, the whistle goes. That must be so frustrating for a centre forward. Yeah, it isn't. If you see keepers the way they come out, they come out with the knees up, the stud showing, yeah. and I mean that they can use the hands. <laughs> you back into them a tiny little bit, and it's it's a. You must have had some platinums off goalkeepers in the past as well. Yeah, that was uh, that's probably why it's my biggest bugbears because <laughs> I was always getting booked for fouls on goalkeepers and I'd end up getting hurt more than, than they would. Who's the best goalkeeper you ever played with? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think probably... I don't know. You got me, put me on the spot there. I thought Julian Sproni at uh, Palace was unbelievable the year I was there. He seemed like a character. Yeah, he just stayed quiet. Nice fella, really, really good. Uh, played with Joe Hart in the the twenty ones. He was excellent was, as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, you'd have to say Tim Howard was one of the most consistent. Yeah. Um, Nigel Martin. I had. I was lucky enough to play with him for a year, and yeah. he was incredible. Obviously, he was in the the later years of his career, but he was still a brilliant goalkeeper. Played, played some decent keepers in you along the way. Uh, what you're doing now? Yeah, I'm. I'm How's uh, the time is soon. Good. It's tough. Busy. Um, Doing a bit of the agency work, trying to mentor some of the young kids to get to where you know they want to be, and hopefully not make some of the mistakes I made and help them that way. You enjoying it? Yeah, I love it. Yeah, it's uh, not missing playing yet. Um, if you're not missing playing at all, even when it, if you if you're not looked at your watch on a Saturday at three o'clock and think, whistle be going, I'll just be playing now. No, if, if if I'm honest with you, I I miss playing for Everton. I miss playing the Premier League, and I miss probably even miss playing in the Championship. That's you know that's what you dream of as a kid. No disrespect to the lower leagues, but mm. it's not the same as that. So I, I don't really miss playing the lower leagues, and I was never going to get back to the Premier League and the Championship. So I can't say as I miss it now. Do you miss the dressing room? Um, a little bit, but I'm fortunate that a lot of my friends had that sort of banter anyway, and yeah, have yeah. played, and we had that sort of rapport going between us anyway. So it's not too much to miss there. James, bring me to catch up with you. Still look as if he could play. I'm sure you can still get involved in the odd charity game. Yeah, no, I played one the other week. Uh, and I definitely can't. Still play. <laughs> A bit stiff the next day. Yeah, definitely, yeah. <laughs> Struggling. James, thanks for your time. Thanks for joining us. No problem, thank you.